you have your Bibles, you can turn with us to Matthew chapter 10. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and as you, as you turn, I want you to think about when was the last time you found yourself in a situation in which you realized you were not prepared for. So I'm actually very thankful to be standing here today, because last Saturday... Cynthia and I found ourselves in a situation that we were neither mentally or physically prepared for, and this will go down in the history of one of our great marital disputes, who's to blame for this and how we wound up in this uh, situation. But for Cynthia's birthday, every year we try and do like some type of race together, some type of uh, event, because she likes that kind of thing. And uh, last year we ran the half marathon at Disney, and for my birthday we go play golf together because I like that kind of thing. That's more my style and speed. And so we did the half marathon last year and running that long is just miserable. So I was trying to find a way that we could still do like some type of athletic event, but it not be running. <laughs> and so what we found is this event called a go ruck race, which is you put on this backpack that weighs, you know, for the guys 45 pounds, the women's weighs 30 and it's run by, this should have been the first clue. It's run by ex military special officers and they try and give you the, you know, that's kind of window into what, you know, like boot camp is like. And, um, so we show up and, you know, we're, Cynthia's kind of, we're thinking it's going to be kind of a, you know, a community kind of, because one of the things, this is not a race, it's a team event where you can meet new people and face new challenges. So, all right, we, you know, we like both of those things. So we show up and she kicks into kind of Cynthia mode, is talking and, you know, meeting new people. And then all of a sudden we hear these screams from an ex-Green Beret who very colorfully is telling us, friends. Not using those words, friends. <laughs> the theme of our day is seek pain. You wanted it. You're about to get it. And that was the first moment it dawned on me. Like, no, no, no that's not, not what we wanted. Um, hmm. How did this happen? And then within 30 minutes, uh, we were just supposed to be lining up, and then that turned into a total debacle filled with push-ups and overhead squats. And one of the, uh, he was a retired Air Force pararescueman. Uh, he said he was a PJ and kind of what he did. He was in the special ops where he would go in, and they kind of drop him in to rescue, you know, wounded or uh, dead soldiers. And so he was well-trained to see someone who's on the verge of death. And so within 15 minutes, he walks over to me and just looks at me and says, you're really struggling, aren't you? <laughs> yes, sir. And it's kind of funny because he's at least 10 years younger than me. Yes, sir. I said, this is going to be a long day for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think it is. And um, that gave me an opportunity to kind of pontificate on, you know, how do we get in these situations where our expectation... And then our experience is so different. There's this gap. Now, actually, pull up uh, back. So we do have one picture. Here's Cynthia. This is Cynthia. She had no idea that morning that she would be leading a cycle for the entire group of 75 overhead squats and then have to belt out a rendition of the national anthem. I just, you know, wasn't quite prepared for what was coming, but still did a fabulous job. And so think about how do you get in a situation where you realize I'm not actually prepared for this? 
And so maybe as you know, you were in school and the teacher pops down a test and you look at the first question and say, oh, I, nope, I am not prepared for this. Or maybe it's your first week in your graduate program and you look at the syllabus and realize the workload that's about to come on you and say, oh, I am okay. Or maybe it's your first week in a new job and you realize all of a sudden, man, I was not ready for this. Or maybe it's three months into the new baby. You think, whoa. Maybe it was six months into new marriage. I think, man, I'm, I'm not prepared for this. And so sometimes you get in those positions and you think, all right, why am I not ready? <laughs> Who's, did I not prepare myself? Or sometimes you just get in situations and you're not prepared and it's not necessarily uh, your fault. One day when we were in Louisville, I was just walking our dog uh, along kind of the road that we walked him every single day. And uh, I hear this incredibly loud crash and I look over and right next to me is a head-on collision. And Brighton and I, my yellow lab and me, are the first ones on the scene at a pretty uh, accident. And I can still hear the teenage girl screaming, help me, help me. So here's the situation. I'm not, I'm not prepared. I have no idea what to do. So what do you do when you find yourself in a situation? I, I'm, I'm not prepared for this. Maybe it's in work. You remember a meeting that you were called into and you were expecting the meeting to be one thing and then something else. Some type of bombshell was just dropped on you and you uh, were not prepared. You know, one of the most disorienting and discouraging and really disappointing things in life is when you can uh, be experiencing something and you realize, look, I'm just not prepared for this. Or there's this giant gap between what I was expecting and what I'm experiencing. And so how do you deal with that gap? And, you know, we have a kind of phrase people often say, well, man, I just, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't what I thought I was getting into. And so you think about that. Actually, pull up this next picture, Maxine. This is actually a picture from World War II. So that's a Polish cavalry officer who's been sent in to halt the advance of Hitler's panzer division that's invading Poland. And so you just look, what does he have? I mean, he's taking cover behind his horse. He has a single-action pump rifle. What's, what's that going to do? But he's been put in an impossible position, a position he is not prepared, no matter how skillful he is, he's not prepared for what he's about to encounter. What do you do when you enter into situations like that? And in many ways, Matthew chapter 10 is given to us by Jesus as a gift so we don't ever find ourselves in situations like that. We say we've, we've entered into this situation and we're just not ready. He actually is going to tell his disciples, I'm about to send you out into the world and it's going to be difficult. I'm sending you into the world and you're going to have to be as shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. It's going to be hard. People are going to hate you. Brother will betray brother. You will be betrayed. I'm sending you into a difficult scenario to accomplish this mission that I'm giving you. And then this is given to prepare you. So what I want us to do is, in, we're going to kind of do an overview of Matthew chapter 10 and then look at the first couple verses because Matthew chapter 10 is the second of Jesus's big uh, kind of teaching uh, blocks in Matthew. Matthew structures his gospel around five major blocks of teaching and they're a curriculum of the Christian life how to prepare you to be a disciple. And each one has a different theme and a different focus. So the Sermon on the Mount is how to live this kingdom life, how we live it together. Matthew chapter 10 is all about the mission he's going to give us. How do we accomplish this mission? And so there's a couple things you can see. It starts actually in chapter 9, verse 35. So let's read there. and We're going to go down to about verse 
uh, 8-ish in chapter 10. So Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers. So there's the first thing. So Jesus is looking out in the world and he's seeing people who are harassed and helpless. They're distressed and they're dejected and his compassion rises up and he he wants to meet their needs and to help them. And then the first thing he says, all right, first thing we're doing is you have to pray. Stop. Before you do anything else, you pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into that harvest. So he wants them to see, all right, the motivation for this mission has to be compassion. And the primary means I'm going to use for it is going to be prayer and then people that I'm going to send. And then now, after they pray that the Lord will send them out, notice what he does. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, drive out demons. Freely you received, freely you give, freely you give. So here he's coming. He's going to put them on on mission. And actually, as you look through this whole chapter, there's a couple different themes we'll cycle through. And the first kind of theme is, all right, the team he's going to assemble. So he's going to assemble a team and then he's going to give them a task. And then once he gives them that task, he's going to then prepare them uh, for the trouble that they're going to face and then the trust that they're going to need. And the way you can actually structure it is there's a line where it says, truly, truly, I say to you, that kind of gives in verse, you see in verse 15, verse 23, verse 42, that kind of gives you the structure of this, this lesson, this curriculum. And the first part from verse 5 all the way to 15 is all about the task that he's going to give them. And then he sums it up with, truly, truly, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah from the towns that reject you. And then starting in 16, he's going to start talking about the trouble they're going to face. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's going to be difficult. You will be hated by everyone. You will be betrayed. And then he sums that up in verse 23. For truly, truly, I tell you, you have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So here's the trouble you're going to face. And then in 42, he sums up the next section. Truly, truly, I say to you, he will never lose his reward. There's going to be people who are going to help you, but what you're going to need is you're going to need trust. Don't be afraid, verse 26. Don't be afraid, verse 28. Verse 31, do not be afraid. So here's the team I'm assembling. Here's the task I'm giving you. Here's the trouble you're going to face. And here's the trust that you're going to need to get you through. And it's how we're going to accomplish his mission so we don't get out into it and realize, whoa, I was not prepared for this. 
So what I want to think about this morning is just start thinking about both the task and the team. So the task and the team. So first thing I want you to notice about the task that he gives them, it actually has two primary characteristics, two categories, two things they're supposed to do. And they're supposed to mirror what he's done. So notice what does he do in verse 35 of chapter 9? He's taught in their synagogues. He's preached. He's healed. So there's a word component and a deed component. Things they're supposed to say and things they're supposed to do. And then notice what he sends them out to do in verse 7 of chapter 10. As you go, proclaim. This is your message. This is word. And then notice the things they're supposed to do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out the demons. Here's the things you're supposed to do. And you can see a summary. Look in verse 35 of chapter 9. He healed every disease and every sickness. And then what does he give them? Authority or power in chapter 10 verse 1 drive out the demons, and then heal every disease and every sickness. So what I want us to think about this morning is that task, it has two components, things they're supposed to say and things they're supposed to do, but the things they're supposed to do kind of has two parts. They're supposed to defeat what's evil and heal what's broken. So two things, defeat what's evil, heal what's broken. And Matthew Henry says he sends them out to conquer the devil and cure the world. No small mission. Conquer the devil and cure the world. So first let's think about, all right, he sends them out to defeat what's evil. You can see it, notice he's casting out demons. He's um, cleansing. He's driving out the demons. In verse um, chapter 10, verse 1, he gives them power over the unclean demonic spirits. So power over the demons. And that really got me thinking this week, all right, what does that actually mean? Where we're called to defeat what is evil. Because I think we have kind of a comic book kind of notion of this. That like, all right, defeat the demons means we think of like demon-possessed people, like the exorcist. And, you know, we don't hardly ever see things like that. So that doesn't really apply to our world. What does it mean to actually defeat what is evil or to drive out the demons? And what I want you to think about is, all right, Jesus is sending them to make war on the devil, but what does that actually mean? What's it involved? And one of the most helpful things, this is the first time I've ever seen this. I hadn't even noticed it when we preached through the book of Revelation. But one of the things that John does in Revelation parallels what John does in his, the Gospel of John. So a couple years ago, when we were going through the Gospel of John, one of the things that was so striking to me is one of the things he does in chapter 1, he gives you seven different titles of who Jesus is. And then he'll unpack all throughout the Gospels what those titles are. So it's not describing seven different people. These are titles that describe seven different aspects of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So he's the one who Moses spoke about, the son of Joseph. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Christ who is the Son of God. He is, you know, and there's seven of them. But John actually does the exact same thing in Revelation for Satan. He actually gives us seven different titles that are meant to illustrate different aspects of what he's actually doing. So pull up, uh, let's pull up the verses, um, Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 22. You can see this in both places. You know, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. You see the parallel in Revelation 20, uh, verse 2. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, 
who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. What John is doing, he's given us four different names you can see there, but those names aren't talking about a different being. They're giving us different aspects of who he is, what he does. And so you can actually use a framework of, all right, we're supposed to defeat what's evil. What is it? What does it mean that he's the dragon? What is that image? You go through Revelation, the image of the dragon is picking up on an image that runs through the whole Bible. What the dragon always tries to do, the work of the dragon, is to devour the children, the seed of the woman, to devour the children. It's an image, an Exodus image, that Pharaoh is the dragon who's trying to devour the sons of Israel. And how does he do it? You know, he wants to devour means eat. And you know, when you eat something, you're bringing it in to be a part of you. So it loses its existence and now becomes absorbed into you. So that's what he's, Pharaoh's doing to the children of Israel. He wants to devour them to make, him, make them his slaves to indoctrinate, enculturate. And then if he can't do that, he's going to kill them, kill the boys. That's what the the dragon is doing. The dragon is Nebuchadnezzar, who's trying to assimilate Shadrach, Meshach, uh, Daniel, trying to assimilate them. And if you can't assimilate them, then throw them into the fire. fire. That's the work of the dragon. The work of the dragon is what Herod does when he tries to destroy Jesus. And if he can't destroy them, he'll destroy all the other children around him. The work of the dragon is to go after the destruction of primarily the children. And now this is something I never really thought about until this week and started thinking, all right, what's the primary front line of the work of the dragon? Where's the dragon trying to consume the children? And I think one of the primary, two primary places, I mean, it's in the realm of education and it's entertainment. These are the places. So what does it look like? And I think one of the things as Christians in general, Christian parents, Christian communities think, all right, what does that mean? How can we protect them? I think you see the work of the dragon anytime you see these anti-Christian forces that are trying to seduce them and incorporate them into a way of thinking and a lifestyle that's contrary to who God is and what he said. That's the work of the dragon. So do we recognize, like, are we sending ourselves or our our children, are we putting them in a place where we're sending them with single pump shotguns and a horse to a panzer fight? And then you think about, all right, what's the ancient serpent? That's the name, the ancient serpent. That's a reference back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And what did the serpent do? How did it deceive Eve? It used twisted language to question, has God really said? And what, what did it hold out? It hold out wisdom. Has God really said you can be wise? And how does the serpent still try and deceive? You know, Adam, Eve, and who's the new Adam? Christ is the second Adam, and the church is the new Eve. So how is the ancient serpent trying to deceive us? So we question, has God really said and get us to disobey our Lord? It's a deceiver. That's using wisdom and sophisticated language to deceive. What does the devil do? That term, the devil, what's that phrase for? The devil uh, is primarily a reference to someone who uses verbal attacks to slander. The devil's primary tactic when when it talks about Satan as devil is using words to slander, using rumor, using innuendo. And the primary target is to slander God's saints and his children. So using language to slander Rumor, innuendo. I mean, do you not notice how we're living in an ocean of slander? You see it everywhere. And one of the saddest things that they've seen over the last year and a half is how eager 
Christians are to sing the satanic song of slander of other believers, Christians both present and past. And so we have to be careful when we're hearing that slander of attacking and rumor and innuendo. Whose song is that? That's the primary tool of the devil. That's his voice. And then you combine that with the next one, Satan, the Satan. That just means accuser. So there was an accuser. And you can see there was an accuser, a Satan, in the heavenly court. You see him in Job and Zechariah who would accuse the brethren. And then Jesus tells the disciples that he saw Satan get cast down, fall. I think that happened in Jesus' ministry where he got cast down, but it's an accuser who makes accusations primarily fueled by true accusations from the law. But you mix the Satan and the devil and you have accusatory slander coming at God's people. That's the battle we're in. That's what we're facing. And then you see those in those verses, the other ones that are in Revelation, you see Wormwood, the C.S. Lewis picks up on Wormwood. What they do is uh, Wormwood starts at the spring of life. You know, the word is supposed to be a living spring of life that gives us spirit-empowered, fresh, uh, living water. But Wormwood makes the, the spring bitter. So it twists the words of life. The bottom two, Abaddon and Apollyon, are different uh, names for destroyers, so people who tear down. You see, it's so easy, it's so delightful to tear things down. But the real challenge is, can you build something up? And so this actually is a a way of thinking, this is the battle we're in. When Jesus sent them out, he's sending them into a battle, and he doesn't want them to go with the shotgun and a horse. He wants them to go prepared. So they're in the battle, but these are the things we're facing. So think about a time of you, have you realized this is the battle or found yourself in a situation where you think, man, I am not prepared for what we are facing. I think one of the things is a call for us to, to repent of these things and think, all right, how can we fight these? That's what he's sending them to fight. But I notice he doesn't just send to them to fight what's evil. He sends them to heal what's broken. Look, at there's a parallel in 935 and 10.1. To not only drive out the unclean spirits, but he sends them to heal every disease and sickness. And here, you know, a little Greek can be helpful. You, you'll know these words. You'll hear the resonance when you, you hear them. It says he sends them out to heal. And the word there is therapuo, therapy. Sends them to heal. And so sometimes we kind of have a conception of like, like what the healing is because Jesus could heal by the power of his word and just instantaneous. It was amazing. But then what does kind of healing does he send us out to do? It's often not the wave, the magic wand, instantaneous thing. It's often the kind of thing that's patterned on like therapy. So if you've ever had any type of like therapy, like physical therapy, where you're trying to rehab your knee, you recognize there's no like magic Ben Gay wand that you can just rub on and all of a sudden it just heals and stops hurting. It actually takes a whole, um, a whole system, a whole routine of recovery and rehab. That's what he's sending them out for. There's going to be a, a long process. But notice what he heals them of. These two words of disease and sickness are really rich words. There's a lot there, disease, sickness. The first one is the word, it's actually the word gnosis. There's a couple of different ways that the first one would be used. We call it disease, but one way that it often be used is, it could be translated just kind of the term mischief. Philo loved to call this mischief, so people are just kind of doing mischievous things. But the things he would put in that category, um, like he used this to describe uh, kind of upper class Jewish aristocracy in his day who uh, the way he even phrases it, they couldn't stop 
committing adultery on their wives. And he said they have this, it's almost like this disease. It's an addiction. They can't really help it. But he's actually talking about moral behavior. And uh, you could hear this in the Greek word. Have you ever heard the word antinomian or nomos, the law? It's anti-law, not going to obey the law. So this is really talking about actually behavior, moral behavior. It's really actually similar to the concepts that we think of like addictions. So people who have um, addictions, sometimes it can just kind of take over and then it can control you. It's that addictive term when it's talking about behavior. But also it can talk about knowledge, intellectual things. There's a Greek word gnosis actually has a G on the front, but knowledge of things you know. It says Paul uses this in 1 Timothy 6 to talk about people who are puffed up with pride and conceit, and they have this unhealthy desire for controversies. It's that word, same thing. So it's an idea of what's what this disease is a disease of the mind. So you're not thinking clearly and you love controversies or the disease of like the will where you're doing things you know you shouldn't do. You can't control your behavior. And then the second word, the word for sickness or affliction is the Greek word malaka. Malaka, we kind of get malady. And it's much more thinking about physical ailments. You could, you could translate it like uh, Homer used this word to criticize soldiers who would say they should be hard, but they're really soft. And uh, in places where they should be hard or weakness is called like weakness where your heart is used to heart conditions where the heart should be strong, but it's actually weak or the lungs should be strong. They're actually weak. This is really what we think about when we think about physical uh, maladies or conditions. But what I think is so important for us is to notice the holistic nature of what he's sending them to heal. It's physical ailments, physical weaknesses. It's mental and it's moral. The total life. It's one of the things we talk about. You know, what is discipleship? You know, discipleship you need. You need sound doctrine, renewal of the Holy Spirit, and faithful living. There's things you need to know to think clearly. You need your heart refreshed and renewed. Then you need to live faithfully where you are. That's what a, a faithful discipleship uh, is. And Jesus is sending them uh, to heal these things. And then now notice the second thing. Well, notice we'll have to come back to this because notice the team he's going to assemble. And there's just some such fascinating things about this team. Especially you can see, you know, one of the things we, we value highly in our world are things like diversity. But often I don't know if we are talking about the same things when we talk about diversity. Like what do we actually mean? What is real diversity? And here you see this incredible example of an incredibly diverse team from all across the spectrums. Very different political uh, takes, very different economic, different educational, crossing all types of boundaries. And he joins them in this unique team. But that's something I think we'll uh, pause and come back for. A couple of questions as you just kind of read through it. Notice, do you notice the shift where first he calls his 12 disciples, then when he sends them, they become 12 apostles. So there's a shift. What happened there? What does that mean? Why does he choose 12? What's significant about that number? Are these the 12 because they some say they represent the new 12 tribes of Israel, the new people of God? Are they the 12 because they're designated as the 12 intentional missionaries who are going to the 12 tribes? Are they 12 because they represent the 12 signs of the Zodiac, which uh, people in the Greek world would think that's the summation of the totality of human beings. Why 12? And it's very interesting. He puts them in groups. They're all in pairs, and each pair is in a pair. So it's three groups of four. So why does he keep them intentionally in those groups? And you actually read the names. It's very fascinating because you actually have Jewish names, you have Greek names, and you have Aramaic names. 
a lot of this incredible cultural diversity, all just in, the, in their names there together. But one of the things I think you'll see here is that the source of his mission, the way he's going to prepare you, what you need so you get out into the world to fulfill his mission is first you need his heart and compassion, the heart of the living Lord for hurting people. And then you need intentional prayer. So you're praying that the Lord will send out people into his harvest. And then you actually need the unified gifts of this team that he's going to send. Nobody can do it alone. You're sent with the team. And then you need to understand the task that he's giving you. I read the story this past week, and one of the more encouraging books that I've uh, read is called Gospel Bound. So if you need a good jolt of uh, five-hour energy, like spiritual encouragement, uh, this is a great little shot to encourage you. This is wonderful stories that uh, really don't get told, that you won't hear of Christians who are doing sacrificial, humble, joyful uh, things to bring transformation into our world. And it was really encouraging, but one of the stories, because uh, I had some recognition of some of the these places is about Rachel Starr and her story kind of embodies so many of these principles that Jesus is going to give to help prepare us to go out into the world. So Rachel Starr uh, was driving down the highway in Louisville, Kentucky, where she lived one day and she uh, drove past a strip club and had this overwhelming sense that Jesus was telling her, you need to do something. And so she just stopped and she actually called her husband and said, I don't know why, but I feel like Jesus is telling me I need to do something to minister to the women in the strip club. And he laughed and says, well, of course, Jesus is telling you that's exactly what he would do. I don't know if he'd go in, but he would minister to them in some way. And so what she did, she called two other of her friends from her Sunday school class. And every Thursday at lunchtime, they would just go and they would sit in front of it. And for that hour, they would just pray for a whole year, just prayed. And then one Thursday, they had this overwhelming sense that Jesus was telling them to go in. And so kind of let me read the story as she recounts it. So she said, I didn't want to look assuming. So uh, we all laughed and she kind of described her outfit. She wore like this turtleneck and then (laughs) took off the makeup and everything. So we walked in and less than two minutes, the bartender asked uh, me and my friends, what on earth are you doing in here? She says that she was big-eyed. She was the daughter of a pastor. She hadn't been allowed to watch movies with strip clubs in them. And so the dark room, the neon lights, the loud music, the dancing girls were completely new to her, and it took a lot for her just to take it in. But then she said instantly she knew what she had to say. Jesus sent me in here to do something kind and loving for the women in this club, she told the bartender. And she can still recite those exact words because she felt like they were given to her straight from God. And then she said, can I bring in a meal? No, he said. He said his face was priceless. He said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Absolutely not. Well, can I talk to the manager or the owner? No, he's busy. So her and her friends just sat there for a few more minutes, drinking their Sprite and talking to people who came and sat. And she said, then 30 minutes later, I felt the presence of God move me to go over to a man. She went, she introduced her, uh, she introduced herself, shook his hand and told him, Jesus sent me here to do something kind and loving for the women in this club. And the man was actually the owner of the club. His mouth dropped open. He said, you're what? She repeated herself, and he told her that in his 30 years of owning the club, he'd seen Christians protesting, but he'd never actually known one to come in. If they did, he didn't know it. She said, well, here I am. And then the next week, Star walked back into the club. This time, she had homemade fried chicken, green beans, and macaroni and cheese in tow. The girls asked her if she went in the dressing room where they were putting on their makeup. 
The girls asked her, where are you from? Uh, what restaurant are you from? She said, no, we're not from a restaurant. Uh, I'm here because Jesus loves you. And she says, that was enough to turn most of them off, and many thought that she had come with poison food. She said it took six months of coming every Thursday to build any sort of trust. And then as she did, she kept coming. Um, one of the stories said one of the first girls who kind of uh, let her in was an 18-year-old who was one of the few who was fortunate enough to own her own apartment. So one day after her shift, she went back with her to the apartment, and there was nothing in it but a Disney princess sleeping bag. And, uh, you know, she, she did what church people do when they see people around them hurting like that. She called her Sunday school class and she said, I need furniture for an apartment. Uh, she didn't tell them why or for who. And the next Saturday, uh, she had a completely refurnished apartment. And then that started, she was the first who responded to Christ. And she said, this has been really hard and really difficult. It hasn't been like singing, you know, through the tulips in this incredible ministry. She started off trying to offer Bible study classes, but that was a disaster. So these women needed a whole lot more than they needed daily touch points, not weekly. She tried to set up a mentoring program with her church, but that turned out to not go very well because most of the women couldn't deal with the uh, manipulating strategies and the manipulation that would be used on them. They tried social programs where they would make like soap and sell it on Etsy, and that didn't work because they couldn't get enough money. Um, there was so much stress that she had to take like a three-month sabbatical uh, to step away, and in that time, five of the girls OD'd. They thought she had left them. They, they were run out of one strip club by one owner because he said all their girls were quitting, and he had to put food on his table. Said with every one step forward is two steps back, but here, 10 years later, over 600 women have transitioned into new careers. They have a ministry in every single one of those. They've started three bakeries to give them a new opportunity to develop a new career. And, you know, you think about, like, she would find herself sitting in a strip club in Louisville, Kentucky, and think, how did I get here? I am not ready for this. But she wasn't there because of her own inability to, like, read the marketing material. She wasn't in there because Jesus sent her into a battle with a horse and a pump rifle. She was there faithfully following her king. And you think about the special services of Christ's kingdom. I think Christ might be more impressed by her faithfulness to walk into that club and go back every single week than he would be if he could probably do um, 100 overhead squats with your rucksack on. That's the kind of thing that really impresses him. And what we see is Jesus will conquer all the forces of evil. He will heal all the brokenness. The only real question is what part will we play in it? Will we be brave enough and strong enough, courageous enough and humble enough to walk into those places with him? So as we transition to communion, I want you to take a moment and just think about where does the power for that victory come from. You know, in Revelation, as it sets up all the forces of the devil, one of the things is the way it's overcome is it's overcome by the blood of the lamb and the testimony of the martyrs. 
It's overcome. Jesus' victory over all that list of the forces of Satan is won by his blood. It's his sacrifice that overcomes the work of the devil and opens up a way into living with God. It's his blood that overcomes the deception and the darkness and by his spirit can speak words of life and healing and hope and truth. It's by his blood that the accuser has been cast out and now what we have in the accuser's place is an intercessor who pleads our case for us and will answer the accusations is by his blood that has defeated the strong man has bound him. It's by his blood that the serpent has been cast out and one day will be completely silent. So as we take communion, I want you to take, and as you uh, partake of both the body and the blood, this is a symbolic representation of what purchased the victory. And as you do, I want you to think first about, as you, as you take, what areas of life right now do you feel unprepared for? You're, you're not prepared. Maybe it's areas of education or family or situation at work or social situation. What area of life do you feel unprepared for? And how is the word of the Lord and the blood of the Lamb your guide and your strength? In what areas in the world do you see the brokenness? You can see it. Ask the Lord to give you eyes to see with compassion, or you do see it. Where do you see the broken areas of your life and your world that need healing? And how is it that the blood of the Lamb can bring healing to those places? In what areas do you see people engaging and fighting the good fight, fighting that which is evil? What areas do you see that? What areas might Christ be calling you to enter into the fray? How can those areas be defeated by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the Lord? And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.